Please turn with me to James chapter 5. So last week was a pretty big week in American history and culture. Powerball lottery reached uh, 550 million. That's the largest single outlay from a Powerball lottery. And thousands of people were buying tickets. Millions of people were buying tickets. One uh, 7-Eleven store in Westminster, Colorado, they sold 2,000 tickets in just 11 hours. Isn't that amazing? In spite of the fact that the odds of a single ticket winning are like zero, right? I mean, uh, it was uh, 176 million to one that a single ticket would win. Now, that's a really small number. So I want to give you, a, I want to give you some comparisons. Things that are, that are actually more likely to occur than you winning Powerball lottery with a single ticket. Okay? First, you are 250,000 times more likely to be struck by a car and die. You're 25,000 times more likely to die in a plane crash than to win the lottery. You're 1,300 times more likely to be struck by lightning, although I think this guy's boosting his chances, right? <laughs> You're 18 times more likely to become president of the United States than to win the lottery with a single ticket. And one of my favorites, you're, you're three times more likely to die from a falling coconut. Unless, of course, you plant coconut trees all around your house, right? And so that's what I always tell my wife. I say, you know, we can't win if we don't play, right? Let's plant some coconut trees. And I, so next time it hits 550 million, I'm playing. I'm playing. Because even though the percentage is statistically zero, it's not absolute zero, right? I could win. You could win. It's possible. Why is it that millions of people win? I mean, rather play, excuse me. Millions don't win. Millions play, right? <laughs> Hardly anybody wins. Why do they play even though it's so unlikely that they're going to win? In fact, uh, apparently most lotteries are really are, are mostly attacks on the poor. People who really cannot afford to play are the ones who buy most of the tickets. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Because life is hard. And the lottery holds out this exceptionally slim hope they can all be fixed just like that life is hard it says in the book of job for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward james is writing to a troubled audience one of their primary troubles is poverty and i expect if there had been a lottery in rome that james audience probably would have bought in because they're poor and they're struggling and they are oppressed. The rich are taking from them. If you read in James chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Beginning in chapter 5, James actually turns away from his audience and he addresses the rich who are oppressing his people. His people work in their fields and then they don't get paid. And they're struggling. Because it's a fallen world. It's, it's filled with, with evil and mean people who do evil and mean things to one another. It's a broken world. If it's not people that are doing evil things to us, it's this world system that's just it's broken. It doesn't work. There's hurricanes and droughts and famines and tornadoes. Things break. Even things that are good, they wear down, they break. You know, this last evening, last night, I was, I was working trying to finish up 
my slides and uh, our, our internet went down. Man, I love the internet when it works. I hate, I just hate it when it doesn't work. So I spent an hour and a half last night, I'm trying to reboot and I'm fixing and I'm unplugging, I'm trying different configurations. An hour and a half, I'm working. Then get this, at the end of an hour and a half, I prayed. I did, I prayed for the internet. I prayed, so okay, God, I, I tried everything. Just make it work. I plugged it back in and it worked. I know, I know, I thought, it's so spiritual. But really, it did, it, it worked. You know, I, it was just stunning. Even the best systems, they're going to wear out. Everything wears down and breaks. Uh, the biblical word for that is corruption. We call it decay. As I've told you students before, you're at the, the peak physically, right? And you know what that means if you're at the peak. The next step is down, right? It's all down. From here, you go down. Body wears out, it grows old, it decays, and eventually it dies. Every single one of us face exactly the same fate. Life is hard. How do you respond to trials and tribulations and suffering? How do you respond? Well, as we've been reading the book of James, we have been seeing, uh, James has chronicled for us several natural responses to suffering. There are natural human responses. And he's been rebuking these, obviously. First is that we're often tempted to complain. When we're suffering, we complain. And James says, hey, listen, don't speak, and don't be angry. The anger of man in the midst of your suffering does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Classic illustration of this biblically is Israel in the wilderness. They're suffering, they're hungry, they're thirsty. And so they complain and they moan and they whine and they're bitter. It's just, it's the easiest thing for us to do as humans when we're suffering. Complain. We fight. We don't have what we want, so we go and get what we want. We take what we want. James' audience apparently was at least tempted toward physical violence. And at the very least, they were thrashing one another with their words, with their speech. It was hateful and it was hurting. They're fighting. Or we're tempted to escape. We're tempted to become friends with the world. Sometimes we, we escape not even into things that are evil or immoral, but it's just away from God. We're suffering and we just want distance. So maybe we, we escape into something that's immoral or maybe we escape into something that's just a hobby that numbs and dulls our love and our need for God. It's very common to escape or we hoard, we get a little bit and we keep it for ourselves. And so if there's a brother or sister in need, we say, be warm, be filled and go. But don't take from our lack and give to them. And we begin to, to live in this overwhelming sense of scarcity and need rather than abundance of Jesus Christ. We enter into our relationships for what we can take rather than what we can give. Or we blame. We blame God. James said, let no one say when he's tested, I'm being tempted by God. God's at fault here. We turn and we blame God or we blame one another. Read with me chapter 5, verse 9. James says, do not complain, brethren, against one another. Do not whine and moan and complain against one another. When you're suffering, what happens? A lot of times your relationships, you, you turn against one another. Dads, when we have a hard day at work, we come home from work, and what do we do? 
find the dog and kick the dog, right? Kick the dog. Dog's like, hey, what did I do? You know, <laughs> you didn't do anything, right? You never do anything. That's the problem with you. You're just a dog. You just eat and, and you go to the vet and you cost me money. The only key, the reason I keep you around here is so I can kick you. So take it, right? Unfortunately, we don't just kick dogs. We kick one another. And we beat up one another. There's conflict and chaos and disorder, James says, in every evil thing. Why? In the midst of the suffering, we don't know how to respond. How do you respond? What's your default? Where do you go? Knowing yourself is really important so that you can know how to respond differently. When we're in the midst of suffering and trials and tribulations of all sorts, as James says, how would God have us respond? I want you to read from the beginning in chapter 5 and verse 7. James says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering with patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and he is merciful. James says the way that God wants us to respond is with patient endurance. What is patience? It's really an interesting word, actually, in the Greek text. It's another one of those compound words. It means to be, uh, literally, it's, it's great or long of anger or passion, but it doesn't mean to be long in expressing that, but rather to be long in uh, restraining. So prolonged restraint of passion or anger is patience, or in other words, to bear up under provocation without complaint. Okay, to bear up under without complaint. Now, interestingly, outside of the Bible, in other Greek literature, this word hardly ever shows up because this is not a Greek or a Roman virtue. It's not a virtue to the Greeks and the Romans, but you see it throughout the Bible. First, in terms of the character of God, it's one of the fundamental characters, character qualities of God's personality. God is patient. God is slow to anger. God is long-suffering. God bears up under horrible circumstances that he sees on the earth. Why? Because he is looking for and longing for and anticipating something much better. God puts up with us. And those who reflect the character of God also have patience. A related term that we've looked at here in James is endurance. And James actually will talk about endurance in chapter 5, verse 11. Remember, it literally means to remain under. To remain under. The the trial or tribulation is sometimes pictured as as a pressure coming down. And rather than escaping or complaining, we stay under. To bear up under is to endure. Or to maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition, hostility, or suffering. That is endurance. Patient endurance is to wait on God even when we are suffering. I want to know, have you ever struggled with feeling impatient? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, okay. When you're really feeling impatient, you're really 
worked up. You're, you're, man, you're just feeling the steam rising. Somebody comes to you and says, be patient. How does that make you feel? <laughs> that, that hacks me off. You know, I get, that makes me more impatient and it makes me then mad at that person. But here's James. He just says bold, flat out. He says, be patient. Remember when we did the introduction, James, we, we, we acknowledged the fact that James issues 54 commands in 108 verses. On average, a command every other verse. Be patient, he says. It's a command. It's an imperative. The implication of that is we could actually obey. The implication is that we have a level of control over whether we respond with patient endurance or not. So the question is, how do we develop patient endurance? James is going to give us basically three, oh, I don't know, perspectives or attitudes that we can cultivate in order to develop patient endurance. The first is steadfast hope. I want you to read with me again chapter 5 and verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You, too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Just like any good speaker, James uses lots of illustrations. There are analogies and metaphors throughout James. Here he talks about the farmer. And his audience immediately understood what he was talking about, but we might not because we think of farming in our own terms, but farming in first century Palestine was very different. For one thing, they had no irrigation. There was no irrigation because there was no constantly flowing rivers other than the River Jordan, which was not accessible to the vast majority of the people. So most of the country, literally, there, there are no rivers that are continuously flowing. It's a great disappointment for people a lot of times when they go to Israel for the first time and they see the brook, the stream, the river where David went down to pick up his five smooth stones and what they see is rocks. Yeah, that's it. There's no water in it, depending on what season. Or maybe there's a flash flood coming through when the rains come. They were dependent upon the rains. So notice what James says here. He says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. It's a clear reference to the way the weather systems worked and the geography worked in Palestine. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 14, it says this. He, that is God, will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. The early rain came in the fall, came in October and November, and it loosened the soil that had become hard and packed because of a long summer of intense dry heat. So the rains would come, it would loosen the soil, the farmer could go in, he could till up the ground and get it prepared for planting season and for farming. The majority of the rains would come from December to February, about 70% of the rains. And then the late rains would come in April and May, just as the head of the grain and wheat was, was coming out. It would give it that final push so the grain could come to maturity. And so the people needed the rains to come at the right time and in the right proportion. Not too much, not too little. Not too soon, not too late. They were completely dependent upon rain and they had no control over the rain. Jeremiah chapter five, it says, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain in its season. 
both the autumn rain and the spring rain, the early and the late rains, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. And if God doesn't bring the rain, we will die. We will die. Now, ironically, there was irrigation in Egypt. They had really complex irrigation systems because the Nile was always flowing. And so they created canals that they could open and close at the proper seasons. They had control. But God's people did not have control so that they would learn dependence. Steadfast hope. So what's the point of the illustration? Read with me in chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Uh, James is not concerned here about rain. What he's talking about is the coming of the Lord. What he's talking about is the return or the coming of Jesus Christ to bless his people. Again, chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. That phrase for coming of the Lord, is the, it's the, the parousia, the appearing or the coming of Jesus Christ. In ancient Greek literature, it referred to the arrival of a dignitary or a king in a town. And so the early church picked this up and they said, you know, this is a, a perfectly appropriate way to speak of the coming or the appearing of our king, Jesus Christ. And so they anticipated the coming, the appearing of Jesus Christ, because when he would come, he would bless. So we see in the prophet Ezekiel, when speaking of the coming of Messiah, I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit and the earth will yield its increase and they will be secure in their land. And Ezekiel is not simply talking again about physical rain, but of showers of blessing associated with the coming of God's Messiah. When he comes, he will set all things right and your poverty will be removed. And your struggle and your sickness and your hardship, it will be removed. But not until he comes. So wait for it. Have steadfast hope for it. Anticipate it. Because that is the moment when God will set all things right. Again, verse 8. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. Now that phrase has given the church all kinds of problems. The coming of the Lord is near. Well, Jesus said it. He said the kingdom of God is near. Paul said it. Peter said it. James said it. They all said it. Christ is near. Christ is near. Christ is near. For 2,000 years, the church has been saying, well, how about now? Right? Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. 2,000 years doesn't seem like near, does it? But what the authors meant was not immediate, but imminent. Not immediate, but imminent. That's what it means that the coming of the Lord, the return of Jesus, is near. It's like history is walking along a cliff. And the next chapter can begin at any moment. History can step off and the next chapter can begin. It's moving right along the edge. It is near. It is imminent. There is nothing that has to occur in the history of God's kingdom program 
before the return of Christ. And the return of Christ will occur in two stages, we're told. The first is the rapture of the church. The catching up of the church is talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Where Christ will descend, he will not come all the way to the earth, but he will come for his people. And he will catch them up and they will meet him in the clouds in the air. And thus we were told by Paul, we will always then be together with the Lord. And in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. There's no sorrow. There's no suffering. There's no pain. There's no more decay. There aren't hurricanes and famines and droughts any longer in the presence of the Lord. It is impossible not to be blessed when you are in the presence of the Lord. And so James says, church, wait for that. That's your hope. That is your hope. Not a simple change in your circumstances. Because your circumstances could get better and then they could get worse again immediately. You know, I I thought about the lottery as an illustration because it was all over the news. $550 million. So I read all kinds of articles about the lottery. And what's fascinating to me is every time the lottery gets big, somebody publishes an article about the fact that money can't make you happy. Right? And you get story after story after story of lottery winners whose lives just tank after they win. One NBC news story said this, a handful of psychological studies over the years have evaluated the happiness of lottery winners over time and found that after the initial glee of getting one of those big giant checks has faded away, most winners actually end up no happier than they were before hitting the jackpot. Many end up less happy. One study indicated that lottery winners had a much more difficult time afterwards enjoying the simple pleasures of life. A walk outside, a cup of coffee with a friend, a compliment. Because of the anxiety that came with all the money. I read a story about a guy named Jack Whitaker. He won $314 million, Powerball jackpot, 2002. Article said this about him. Life since then has been a long list of arrests, lawsuits, broken relationships, and even death. In 2007, his then wife, Jewel, admitted, I wish I had torn up the ticket. There is no simple change in your circumstances that can give you all that you want and need. Because life is broken. It's a fallen world. And it won't be set right until... Jesus comes for you. And many Christians waste life because all that they're living for is a change in circumstances. Many Christians waste life because they're not enjoying the moment. They're not enjoying what God has given right now, the blessings that he's given right now with a thankful and a grateful heart. They're not living in light of the return of Christ, which enables us to put up with so much junk right now. If you're single, you're longing to get married. And you say to yourself, if only I can get married, then life will be great. (laughs) It's okay. Talk later. Then you get married and you say, if only I can have kids, then life will be great. Then you have kids. If only they'll learn to obey and mature and leave. (laughs) Then life will be great, right? And then they leave and mom says, if only they'd come back or at least call. 
If only I could save enough for retirement. And then you save enough for retirement. You say, if only I could enjoy retirement. But ah, I hurt every morning that I get out of bed. I can't even enjoy all the money that I earned and I saved. And my kids won't call and they don't show me the grandkids. <laughs> if only, if only, if only, if only. And you miss the joy of this moment. And you miss the power of living in light of the return of Jesus Christ when he sets all things right. Christ will come to bless. Christ will also come to vindicate his people. Verse 8, again, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. That phrase held a connotation for early Christians, and it was vindication. When Christ is near, he is coming near for judgment. He will vindicate us. He will prove that we chose wisely to live for eternity and not for the present. We will be vindicated. James gives a couple of illustrations of this. Verse 10 says, as an example, an example was, was a sketch or a pattern or a model. It says these people were a model. They were a sketch. They were an example. Follow their example. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Uh, don't envy the prophets, but just use them as an illustration. The prophets had a pretty rough go. Elijah was chased through the wilderness, and he was alone and lonely. Jeremiah was thrown into a well. Isaiah was sawn in two. They were rejected. They were rejected by their family and by their friends, by the rulers of their people. They were rejected by their nation. And they cried out as they were suffering with patience, God, vindicate us. They were not vindicated normally in their own lifetimes. They were waiting for the return of Christ. Vindicate us. He gives a second illustration, verse 11. He says, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and he is merciful. What's the point of Job's illustration? I was talking to John earlier. He said they, they just finished studying Job in his Bible study. Job's a hard book to read, isn't it? There's a lot of complaining going on in Job, Right? 42 chapters. It's a long one, too. A lot of fighting, a lot of complaining, a lot of arguing. How, in what sense is Job an example of, of patient suffering? He seems kind of impatient to me. The point is that Job didn't quit on God. Job didn't give up. Even in the midst of his sufferings, Job clung to God and he waited. And he waited. And he waited for God to answer him. It wasn't always a pleasant answer at the end of the book. He didn't get reasons for his sufferings. But he saw the greatness of God. And at the end of Job's life, we're told Job's fortunes were restored. Now, the point is not, therefore, if you cling to God in this life, all fortunes will be restored. That's not the point. The point is that at the end of the chapter, God always blesses. Okay? At the end of the chapter, God always blesses. And we're in the middle of a chapter of history right now. The end of the chapter begins for us with the rapture and we're caught up. And then that chapter is concluded with the return of Jesus Christ, his second coming to earth when he removes his enemies and he vindicates us. And at the end of the chapter, we see that the beginning of all of eternity opens up before us. 
and it's an eternity. We're not battling with poverty and sickness and death. We're not battling even with temptation or sin. But we're living in the fullness of the blessing of God. James says to his audience, cultivate steadfast hope because your hope is in Christ. Your hope is not in this life. It's not in this present chapter and it is not in a small change in your current circumstances. Your hope is the coming of Jesus Christ. Therefore, live for that. Second, we cultivate an attitude of reverent fear. Read with me chapter 5, verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Who's the judge? The judge is Jesus. Jesus is our judge. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we will be judged. The first judgment, in fact, is a judgment of believers, not of unbelievers. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. We are judged. We are evaluated first. The issue is not heaven or hell. If you have believed that Jesus Christ died for your sins, you have eternal life. You have the removal of the debt of your sins forever and you possess eternal life. That can never be removed from you and you cannot even give it back. That is eternal security. But as secure believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be reverently fearful and remember that our lives will be evaluated by God. Did we live well and did we live wisely? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that is, Christians, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul says, wow, you know, that makes me pause for a moment. I know that I'm eternally secure and loved by my father, but I also know that the son is going to look at my life. And one of his standards will be, how'd you suffer? How did you respond when you were suffering? When you were suffering trials and tribulations and temptations of all sorts, how did you respond? Did you get angry at God and curse God? Did you complain to one another? Did you go out and just take what you wanted? Did you escape? If you think that this is all that there is to life, you know what? That is how you will respond. If you are living in light of the return of Jesus Christ, you can put up with a lot. How'd you respond when you were suffering? How did you treat others? When you lacked, did you continue to give? We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one can be evaluated according to the way we've lived, the choices we've made. James has given us 54 commands, plenty, plenty to do, so to speak. But specifically, how did you respond in the midst of suffering? James says, know the fear of the Lord. Remember, it matters, Christians, how you live. Third, diligent labor. I'll take you back to the farmer illustration. So let's read it again. Verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. The farmer waits. Does that mean the farmer does nothing? No. In fact, uh, waiting in the Bible is always a very active exercise. It's a reason that James uses 
farmer is the analogy. To be a farmer is one of the most difficult vocations on the earth. You work and you work and you work, but you don't ultimately control all of the outcomes. And the farmer works and he works, he labors, he tills the ground, he plants the seed. And then he prays and he prays and he prays and he pulls weeds and he prays. He prays for rain. He prays for the right amount of rain in the right season. Not too much, not too little, not too soon, not too late because he is dependent upon God, but he is active in his waiting and he's praying and he's longing. God bless. He's waiting for that precious produce of the soil until it gets what only God can provide. He is laboring as he is waiting. What is he doing? Well, he said 54 commands, but specifically he says, you too be patient Strengthen your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. That means to cause to be inwardly firm, secure, committed, unwavering. And it's a plural command. Strengthen your heart. Remembering the coming of the Lord. Strengthen your heart knowing that God will set all things right. Strengthen your heart knowing that the end of the chapter is blessing. But then strengthen your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. Don't turn inwardly and fight and complain against one another. But encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the writer of the Hebrew tells us. Encourage one another. All the more as you see that day drawing near. We are walking along that precipice of human history. And at any moment, Jesus Christ could come and he could grab us. Let's encourage one another. Let's remind one another Jesus Christ will return. He will. And when he returns, he will bless. And let's wait for that. And as we're waiting and as we're suffering together, let's give. Whatever we have, let's not hoard. Let's share so that we can encourage one another, so that we're all prepared for that moment of evaluation because we have prepared one another. That's why James gives us a plural command here. You know, we cannot learn patient endurance simply on our own. We need the encouragement of one another. So let me give you just a few things to think about. Three thoughts as we close. First, recognize that suffering is normal. That's not pessimistic. That's not cynical. That is reality. Man is prone for hardship as the sparks fly upward, it says in Job. It's true. If you become a believer in Jesus Christ, all problems don't immediately disappear and you'll never be sick and you'll never die. That's that's not how it works. We live in the same broken, fallen world. In this chapter, God doesn't rescue us from every struggle. It just doesn't happen. And when we come to grips with that, we are able to survive psychologically a lot better. It's just true. Second, dwell on the appearing of Jesus. This, in my mind, is the reason we're given so much prophecy in the Bible, not so that we can figure out the right date, right? Predict the date, because no one knows the date. (laughs) Don't buy it. But we are given so much information about the future so that we'll live for it. So we see this coming age is, is so far superior to what we're experiencing now. Let's live for that. Let's live for that. That's why we study and meditate on prophetic literature, we want to know what's it going to be like in the next chapter of our lives. Then third, give thanks for what you have now. Don't miss the moment. Do you lack something? Of course. Every person sitting around you lacks something that they really long for, probably that they really need. Everyone lacks. 
But we also all have been blessed, and nothing transforms our attitude, our perspective, like simply stopping and saying, God, I thank you for what I have now, and I can't wait for what we'll receive in the future. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would learn to live in light of the return of Jesus, genuinely, tangibly, that we would learn to put up with, in patient endurance, the suffering that we experience, knowing that your Son will come for us, And put all things right. And I pray, Father, especially for this body of believers, that we would learn how to encourage one another. We're struggling and we're down and we're frustrated. That we would learn how to come alongside one another. Not simply say, be patient. But that we would meet one another's needs. And we would point one another to the return of Jesus. Father, I thank you for this season that reminds us that you fulfilled your promise in sending your son once and you will fulfill your promise again in sending him for a second time for us. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Be patient.